Section twenty of the Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume Ten. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by phone. The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume Ten, by Anonymous, translated by Richard Francis Burton. The Matter of the Nights, Part Two. I will take from the nights, as a specimen of the true Persian romance, the Queen of the Serpents, Volume Five, two hundred ninety-eight, the subject of Lane's Carlylean denunciation. The first gorgeous picture is the session of the snakes, which, like their Indian congeners, the Naga kings and queens, have human heads and reptile bodies an egyptian myth that engendered the old serpent of genesis the sultana welcomes hasib karim al-din the hapless lad who had been left in a cavern to die by the greedy woodcutters and in order to tell him her tale introduces the adventures of bulukia the latter is an israelite converted by editor and scribe to mohammedanism but we can detect under his assumed faith the older creed. Solomon is not buried by authentic history beyond the seven mystic seas, but at Jerusalem or Tiberias, and his seal-ring suggests the Jamijan, the crystal cup of the great king Jamshid. The descent of the archangel Gabriel, so familiar to al-Islam, is the manifestation of Baman, the first intelligence, the mightiest of the angels who enabled Zarathustra Zoroaster to walk like Bulukia over the Dalati or Caspian Sea. Amongst the sights shown to Bulukia, as he traverses the seven oceans, is a battle royale between the believing and the unbelieving jinns, true Magian dualism, the eternal duello of the two roots or antagonistic principles, good and evil, Hormuzd and Ariman, which Milton has debased into a commonplace modern combat fought also with cannon. Sakr the Jinni is Eshem chief of the Deeds, and Kaf, the encircling mountain, is a later edition of Persian Al-Bots. So in the Mantak Al-Tair, colloquy of the Flyers, the birds, emblems of souls, seeking the presence of the gigantic feathered biped Simurg, their god, traverse seven seas, according to others seven vadis, of search, of love, of knowledge, of competence, of unity, of stupefaction, and of altruism, that is, annihilation of self, the several stages of contemplative life. At last, standing upon the mysterious island of the Simurk, and casting a clandestine glance at him, they saw thirty birds in him, and when they turned their eyes to themselves, the thirty birds seemed one Simurk. They saw in themselves the entire Simurk. They saw in the Simurk the thirty birds entirely. Therefore, they arrived at the solution of the problem, we and thou, that is, the identity of God and man. They were forever annihilated in the Simurk, and the shade vanished in the sun. Ibid three two hundred and fifty. The wild ideas concerning Khalid and Malit, volume five three hundred nineteen, 
are again Guebre. From the seed of Cayomas, the androgyn, like pre-Adamite man, sprang a tree shaped like two human beings, and thence proceeded Meshia and Meshiana, first man and woman, progenitors of mankind, who, though created for Chidistan, light land, were seduced by Ariman. This two-man tree is evidently the duality of physis and antiphysis, nature and her counterpart, the battle between Mir, Izat, or Mitra, with his Surus and Feriste, seraphs and angels, against the Divs who are the children of time led by the archdemon Eshem. Thus, when Hormuzd created the planets, the dog, and all useful animals and plants, Araman produced the comets, the wolf, noxious beasts, and poisonous growths. The Hindus represent the same metaphysical idea by Brahma the creator and Vishvakarma, the anti-creator, miscalled by Europeans Vulcan. The former fashions a horse and a bull, and the latter caricatures them with an ass and a buffalo. Evolution turned topsy-turvy. After seeing nine angels and obtaining an explanation of the seven stages of earth, which is supported by the Gavizamin, the energy, symbolized by a bull, implanted by the creator in the mundane sphere, Bulukia meets the four archangels, to wit Gabriel, who is the Persian Rabban Baksh, or life-giver, Michael, or Beshter, Raphael, or Israfil, alias Ardibihisht, and Azazel, or Azrael, who is Duma, or Mordat, the death-giver, and the four are about to attack the dragon, that is, the demons hostile to mankind, who are driven behind Albor's calf by Tamaras, the ancient Persian king. Bulukia then recites an episode within an episode, the story of Janshah, itself a Persian name, and accompanied by two others, volume 5, 329, the mise being Kabul and the king of Khorasan appearing in the prone. Janshah, the young prince, no sooner comes to man's estate than he loses himself out hunting and falls in with cannibals, whose bodies divide longitudinally, each moiety going its own way. These are the sheik, split ones, which the Arabs borrowed from the Persian nimshira, or half-faces. They escape to the ape island, whose denizens are human in intelligence and speak articulately, as the universal East believes they can. These simiads are at chronic war with the ants, alluding to some obscure myth which gave rise to the gold-diggers of Herodotus and other classics. Emmets in size somewhat less than dogs, but bigger than foxes. The episode then falls into the banalities of oriental folklore. Janshah, passing the Sebation River and reaching the Jews' city, is persuaded to be sewn up in a skin and is carried in the normal way to the top of the Mountain of Gems, where he makes acquaintance with Shaikh Nazar, Lord of the Birds. He enters the usual forbidden room, falls in love with the patterned swan-maiden, wins her by the popular process, loses her and recovers her through the monk Yagmus, whose name, like that of King Tegmus, is a burlesque of the Greek, 
and finally, when she is killed by a shark, determines to mourn her loss till the end of his days. Having heard this story, Bolukia quits him, and resolving to regain his natal land, falls in with Kiza, and the green prophet, who was vizier to Kobad, 6th century BC, and was connected with Macedonian Alexander, enables him to win his wish. The rest of the tale calls for no comment. Thirdly and lastly, we have the histories, historical stories, and the Anna of great men in which Easterns as well as Westerns delight. The gravest writers do not disdain to relieve the dullness of chronicles and annals by means of such discussions, humorous or pathetic, moral or grossly indecent. The dates must greatly vary. Some of the anecdotes relating to the early caliphs appear almost contemporary. Others, like Ali of Cairo and Abu al-Shamat, may be as late as the Ottoman conquest of Egypt, 16th century. All are distinctly Sunnite and show fierce animus against the Shia heretics, suggesting that they were written after the destruction of the Fatimite dynasty, 12th century, by Salah al-Din, Saladin the Kurd, one of the latest historical personages, and the last king named in the Knights. These anecdotes are so often connected with what a learned Frenchman terms the Reine Féerique de Aroun et Rachid, that the great caliph becomes the hero of this portion of the Knights. Aaron the Orthodox was the central figure of the most splendid empire the world had seen, the vice-regent of Allah combining the powers of Caesar and Pope, and wielding them right worthily according to the general voice of historians. To quote a few, Ali bin Talib al-Khorasani described him, in A.D. 934, a century and a half after his death, when flattery would be tongue-tied, as one devoted to war and pilgrimage, whose bounty embraced the folk at large. Saadi, died A.D. 1291, tells a tale highly favourable to him in the Gulistan, Lib. 1, 36. Fakr al-Din, 14th century, lauds his merits, eloquence, science, and generosity, and al-Siuti, born A.D. 1445, asserts, he was one of the most distinguished of caliphs, and the most illustrious of the princes of the earth. Page 290. The Shaykh al Nafsabi, 16th century, in his Raus al Atir Finaza al Katil, his scented garden site for heart delight, calls Harun, chapter 7, the master of munificence and bounty, the best of the generous. And even the latest writers have not ceased to praise him. Says Ali Aziz Effendi the Cretan, in the story of Jivad, Harun was the most bounteous, illustrious, and upright of the Abbasid caliphs. The fifth Abbasid was fair and handsome, of noble and majestic presence, a sportsman and an athlete who delighted in polo and archery. He showed sound sense and true wisdom in his speech to the grammarian poet Al-Azmai, who had undertaken to teach him. Ne m'enseignez jamais en public et ne vous empressez pas trop de me donner des avis en particulier. Attendez ordinairement 
que je vous interroge, et contentez-vous de me donner une réponse précise à ce que je vous demanderai, sans y rien ajouter de superflu. Gardez-vous surtout de vouloir me préoccuper pour vous attirer ma créance et pour vous donner l'autorité. Ne vous étendez jamais trop en long sur la histoire et la tradition que vous me raconterez, si je ne vous en donne la permission. Lorsque vous verrez que je m'éloignerai de l'équité dans mes jugements, ramenez-moi avec douceur, sans user de paroles fâcheuses ni de réprimandes. Enseignez-moi principalement les choses qui sont les plus nécessaires pour le discours que je dois faire en public, dans les mosquées et ailleurs, et ne parlez point en termes obscurs ou mystérieux, ni avec des paroles trop recherchées. He became well read in science and letters, especially history and tradition, for his understanding was as the understanding of the learned, and like all educated Arabs of his day, he was a connoisseur of poetry, which at times he improvised with success. He made the pilgrimage every alternate year, and sometimes on foot, while his military expeditions almost equaled his pilgrimages. Day after day, during his caliphate, he prayed a hundred bows, never neglecting them, save for some especial reason, till his death, and he used to give from his privy purse alms to the extent of a hundred dirhams per diem. He delighted in Panagiri and liberally rewarded its experts, one of whom, Abd al-Samak the preacher, fairly said of him, Thy humility in thy greatness is nobler than thy greatness. No caliph, says al-Niftavaj, had been so profusely liberal to poets, lawyers, and divans, although as the years advanced he wept over his extravagance amongst other sins. There was vigorous manliness in his answer to the Grecian emperor who had sent him an insulting missive. In the name of Allah, from the commander of the faithful Harun al-Rashid, to Nisiphorus the Roman dog, I have read thy writ, O son of a miscreant mother. Thou shalt not hear, thou shalt see my reply. Nor did he cease to make the Byzantine feel the weight of his arm, till he knocked his camel in the imperial courtyard, and this was only one instance of his indomitable energy and hatred of the infidel. Yet if the West is to be believed, he forgot his fanaticism in his diplomatic dealings and courteous intercourse with Carolus Magnus. Finally, his civilized and well-regulated rule contrasted as strongly with the barbarity and turbulence of Occidental Christendom, as the splendid court and the luxurious life of Baghdad and its carpets and hangings devanced the quasi-savagery of London and Paris, whose palatial halls were spread with rushes. The great caliph ruled twenty-three years and a few months. A. H. 170-193 is A. D. 786-808 and as his youth was checkered and his reign was glorious, so was his end obscure. After a vision foreshadowing his death, which happened, as becomes a good Muslim, during a military expedition to Khorasan, he ordered his grave to be dug and himself to be carried to it in a covered litter. 
when sighting the fosse he exclaimed, O son of man, thou art come to this. Then he commanded himself to be set down, and the perfection of the Quran to be made over him, in the litter on the edge of the grave. He was buried, age forty-five, at Sanabad, a village near Tus. Aaron the Orthodox appears in the nights as a headstrong and violent autocrat, a right royal figure according to the Muslim ideas of his day. But his career shows that he was not more tyrannical or more sanguinary than the normal despot of the East, or the contemporary kings of the West. In most points, indeed, he was far superior to the historic misrulers who have afflicted the world from Spain to furthest China. But a single great crime, a tragedy whose details are almost incredibly horrible, marks his reign with a stain of infamy, with a blot of blood never to be washed away. This tale, full of the waters of the eye, as Ferdowsi sings, is the massacre of the Barmecides, a story which has often been told, and which cannot here be passed over in silence. The ancient and noble Iranian house, belonging to the Abna, or Arabized Persians, had long served the Omeyyads till, early in our eighth century, Khalid bin Barmek, the chief, entered the service of the first Abbasid and became wazir and intendant of finance to Al-Safa. The most remarkable and distinguished of the family, he was in office when Al-Mansur transferred the capital from Damascus, the headquarters of the hated Omeyyads, to Baghdad, built ad hoc. After securing the highest character in history by his personal gifts and public services, he was succeeded by his son and heir Yahya, John, a statesman famed from early youth for prudence and profound intelligence, liberality and nobility of soul. He was charged by the Caliph al-Mahdi with the education of his son Harun, hence the latter was accustomed to call him father, and until the assassination of the fantastic tyrant al-Hadi, who proposed to make his own child Caliph, he had no little difficulty in preserving the youth from death in prison. The Orthodox, once seated firmly on the throne, appointed Yahya his grand vizier. This great administrator had four sons, Al-Fazl, Ja'far, Muhammad, and Musa, in whose time the house of Bermek rose to that height from which decline and fall are, in the east, well-nigh certain and immediate. Al-Fazl was a foster-brother of Harun, an exchange of suckling infants having taken place between the two mothers for the usual object, a tightening of the ties of intimacy. He was a man of exceptional mind, but he lacked the charm of temper and manner which characterized Ja'afar. The poets and rhetoricians have been profuse in their praises of the cadet, who appears in the nights as an adviser of calm, sound sense, an intercessor and a peacemaker, and even more remarkable than the rest of his family for an almost incredible magnanimity and generosity, une générosité effrayante. Mohammed was famed for exalted views and nobility of sentiment, and Musa for bravery and energy. Of both it was justly said, they did good and harmed not. For ten years, not including an interval of seven, from the time of Al-Rashid's accession, A.D. 786, 
to the date of their fall, A.D. 803, Yahya and his sons, Al-Fazl and Ja'afar, were virtually rulers of the great heterogeneous empire, which extended from Mauritania to Tartary, and they did notable service in arresting its disruption. Their downfall came sudden and terrible, like a thunderbolt from the blue. As the caliph and Ja'afar were halting in Al-Umr, the convent, near Ambar town on the Euphrates, after a convivial evening spent in different pavilions, Harun, during the dead of night, called up his page Yasir al-Rikla, and bade him bring Ja'afar's hand. The messenger found Ja'afar still carousing with the blind poet Abu Zakar, and the Christian physician Gabriel ibn Bakhtiashu, and was persuaded to return to the caliph and report his death. The wazir adding, And he expressed regret, I shall owe thee my life. And if not, whatso Allah will be done. Ja'afar followed to listen, and heard only the caliph exclaim, O sucker of thy mother's clitoris, if thou answer me another word, I will send thee before him whereupon he at once bandaged his own eyes and received the fatal blow. Al-Azmai, who was summoned to the presence shortly after, recounts that when the head was brought to Harun, he gazed at it, and summoning two witnesses, commanded them to decapitate Yasir, crying, I cannot bear to look upon the slayer of Ja'afar. His vengeance did not cease with the death. He ordered the head to be gibbeted at one end, and the trunk at the other abutment of the Tigris Bridge, where the corpses of the vilest malefactors used to be exposed. And some months afterward, he insulted the remains by having them burned, the last and worst indignity which can be offered to a Muslim. There are indeed pity and terror in the difference between two such items in the treasury accounts as these. Four hundred thousand dinars, two hundred thousand pounds, to a robe of honour for the wazir Ja'afar bin Yahya, and ten kirat, five shillings, to Napta and reeds for burning the body of Ja'afar the Barmecide. Meanwhile, Yahya and Al-Fazl, seized by the Caliph Harun's command at Baghdad, were significantly cast into the prison Habs al-Zanadika of the Guebras, and their immense wealth, which, some opine, hastened their downfall, was confiscated. According to the historian Al-Tabari, who, however, is not supported by all the analysts, the whole Barmecide family, men, women, and children, numbering over a thousand, were slaughtered with only three exceptions, Yahya, his brother Muhammad, and his son Al-Fazl. The caliph's foster-father, who lived to the age of seventy-four, was allowed to die in jail, A.H. 805, after two years' imprisonment at Ruka. Al-Fazl, after having been tortured with two hundred blows in order to make him produce concealed property, survived his father three years, and died in November A.H. 808, some four months before his terrible foster-brother. A pathetic tale is told of the sun warming water for the old man's use by pressing the copper ewer to his stomach. 
the motives of this terrible massacre are variously recounted but no sufficient explanation has yet been or possibly ever will be given the popular idea is embodied in the knights haroun wishing jaafar to be his companion even in the harem had wedded him pro forma to his eldest sister abassa the loveliest woman of her day and brilliant in mind as in body but he has expressly said i will marry thee to her that it may be lawful for thee to look upon her but thou shalt not touch her jaafar bound himself by a solemn oath but his mother ataba was mad enough to deceive him in his cups and the result was a boy ibn Kalikan, or according to others twins the issue was sent under the charge of a confidential eunuch and a slave girl to mecca for concealment but the secret was divulged to zubaida who had her own reasons for hating husband and wife and cherished an especial grievance against yahya thence it soon found its way to headquarters haroun's treatment of abassa supports the general conviction according to the most credible accounts she and her child were buried alive in a pit under the floor of her apartment but possibly jaafar's perjury was only the last straw already al-fazl bin rabia the deadliest enemy of the barmecides had been entrusted a d seven hundred eighty six with the wazirat which he kept seven years jaafar had also acted generously but imprudently in abetting the escape of yahya bin abdillah sayyid and alide for whom the caliph had commanded confinement in a close dark dungeon when charged with disobedience the wazir had made full confession and haroun had they say exclaimed thou hast done well but was heard to mutter allah slay me and i slay thee not the great house seems at times to have abused its powers by being too peremptory with haroun and zubaida especially in money matters and its very greatness would have created for it many and powerful enemies and detractors who plied the caliph with anonymous verse and prose nor was it forgotten that before the spread of al islam they had presided over the nabehar or parathium of balkh and haroun is said to have remarked anand yahya the zeal for magianism rooted in his heart induces him to save all the monuments connected with his faith hence the charge that they were sanadaka a term properly applied to those who study the zen scripture but popularly meaning mundanists positivists reprobates atheists and it may be noted that immediately after al-rashid's death violent religious troubles broke out in baghdad ibn Kalikan quotes sayyid ibn salim a well-known grammarian and traditionist who philosophically remarked of a truth the barmecides did nothing to deserve al-rashid's severity but the day of their power and prosperity had been long and whatso endureth long waxeth longsome fakr al-din says page twenty seven on attribue encore leur ruine aux manières fières et orgueilleuses de Javar, Jaafar, et de Fadel, Al-Fazl, manière que le roi ne saurait rien supporter. According to Ibn Badrun, the poet, when the caliph's sister Olaya asked him, 
O oh my lord, I have not seen thee enjoy one happy day since putting Ja'afar to death. Wherefore didst thou slay him? He answered, My dear life, and I thought that my shirt knew the reason I would rend it in pieces. I therefore hold with al-Masudi. As regards the intimate cause of the catastrophe, it is unknown and Allah is omniscient. Aaron the Orthodox appears sincerely to have repented his enormous crime. From that date he never enjoyed refreshing sleep. He would have given his whole realm to recall Ja'afar to life, and if any spoke slightingly of the Barmecides in his presence, he would exclaim, God damn your fathers! Cease to blame them or fill the void they have left. And he had ample reason to mourn the loss. After the extermination of the wise and enlightened family, the affairs of the Caliphate never prospered. Fazl bin Rabia, though a man of intelligence and devoted to letters, proved a poor substitute for Yahya and Ja'afar, and the Caliph is reported to have applied to him the couplet, No sire to your sire I bid you spare, your calumnies or their place replace. His unwise elevation of his two rival sons filled him with fear of poison, and lastly the violence and recklessness of the popular mourning for the Barmecides, whose echo has not yet died away, must have added poignancy to his tardy penitence. The crime still sticks fiery off from the rest of Haroon's career. It stands out in ghastly prominence as one of the most terrible tragedies recorded by history and its horrible details make men write passionately on the subject to this our day. As of Haroon, so of Zubaydah, it may be said that she was far superior in most things to contemporary royalties, and she was not worse at her worst than the normal despot queen of the morning land. We must not take seriously the tales of her jealousy in the nights, which mostly end in her selling off or burying alive her rivals. But even were all true, she acted after the recognized fashion of her exalted sisterhood. The secret history of Cairo, during the last generation, tells of many a viceregal dame who had committed all the crimes, without any of the virtues which characterized Haroon's cousin's spouse. And the difference between the manners of the caliphate and the respectability of the nineteenth century may be measured by the tale called al-Mamun and Zubayda. The lady, having won a game of forfeits from her husband, and being vexed with him for imposing unseemly conditions when he had been the winner, condemned him to lie with the foulest and filthiest kitchen wench in the palace. And thus was begotten the caliph, who succeeded and destroyed her son. Zubayda was the granddaughter of the second Abbasid al-Mansur, by his son Ja'afar, whom the knights persistently term Al-Qasim. Her name was Amat al-Aziz, or Handmaid of the Almighty. Her cognomen was Um Ja'afar, as her husband's was Abu Ja'afar, and her popular name Creamkin derives from Zubda, cream or fresh butter, on account of her plumpness and freshness. She was as majestic and munificent as her husband and the hum of prayer was never hushed in her palace. Al-Masudi makes a historian say to the dangerous caliph Al-Kahir, The nobleness and generosity of this princess 
in serious matters as in her diversions, place her in the highest rank, and who proceeds to give ample proof. Alciuti relates how she once filled a poet's mouth with jewels which he sold for twenty thousand pinars. Ibn Kalikan, one five hundred twenty-three, affirms of her, her charity was ample, her conduct virtuous, and the history of her pilgrimage to Mecca and of what she undertook to execute on the way is so well known that it were useless to repeat it. I have noted, pilgrimage three, two, how the Darb al-Sharqi, or eastern roads from Mecca to al-Medina, was due to the piety of Zubayda, who dug wells from Baghdad to the Prophet's burial place, and built not only cisterns and caravanserais, but even a wall to direct pilgrims over the shifting sands. She also supplied Mecca, which suffered severely from want of water, with the chief requisite for public hygiene, by connecting it through levelled hills and hewn rocks with the Ain al-Mushash in the Arafat sub-range, and a fine aqueduct some ten miles long was erected at a cost of 1.7 to 2 million of gold pieces. We cannot wonder that her name is still famous among the Badawin and the sons of the holy cities. She died at Baghdad after a protracted widowhood in A.H. 216, and her tomb, which still exists, was long visited by the friends and dependents who mourned the loss of a devout and most liberal woman. End of section 20. Recording by phone.